0: Thanks for joining us. Sami e Martinez, co host of Take Two on KPCC, Southern California Public Radio. Donald Trump and Hillary Clinton each release more information on their health records. Uh, Russian hackers leak emails from former Secretary of State Colin Powell, and the NCAA moves championship games out of North Carolina over the state's so called bathroom bill. Joining us this week, Friday's, for this week's Friday News Roundup. Rebecca Cinderbrand, Deputy National Political Editor at The Washington Post. Jeff Mason, White House Correspondent for Reuters. And Susan Glasser, Editor of Politico. Thank you all three of you for being here. Good to be here. And uh, we're going to be taking your thoughts, too. You give us a call at 800-433-8850. That's 800-433-8850. You can also send us an email at drshow at wamu.org or join us on Facebook or Twitter. All right, Rebecca, you're uh, leading off for us here. So there's uh, a poll that's... That is uh, showing a very tight race for the White House. Uh, tell us the latest.
1: So, you know, there was a New York Times-CBS poll out this week basically showing Donald Trump is, is seeming to gain a little bit of ground on Hillary Clinton nationally. And this is what we're seeing at the state level, too. It's starting to trickle down. You're seeing uh, Trump making up ground, tightening in race tightening up races where um, it hadn't been tight and surging ahead in races where it had been neck and neck. Um Unclear whether it's a temporary blip. The interesting thing about the New York Times CBS poll, kind of when you go a little bit deeper into the numbers, um, it's a very clear contrast on just two questions whether or not there's, the person is honest hmm. and whether or not the candidate will bring real change to Washington. Uh, Donald Trump has the edge on the honesty question. Hillary Clinton has the edge on Um, And uh, Donald Trump has the edge on who will bring change to Washington. Mm. Um, And Hillary Clinton has the edge on who has the temperament to be president. I'm sorry. So, you know, do they want someone who has the temperament to fill the job (laughs) or do they want someone who's going to shake things up a little bit? That's the
2: question right now. And
0: Susan, it seems like no one is quite happy with either choice, regardless of uh, leanings.
2: Uh, Well, one thing about this extraordinary campaign that will long be remembered is the fact that both nominees are uh, extraordinarily unpopular. And by the time uh, they're done with it, certainly they'll have made the job of running for president uh, one of the most unappealing jobs (laughs) you can imagine in America. But, uh, you know, it's very striking. Their unfavorables are just at extraordinary highs. And by the way, I think we should contrast that with President Obama's approval rating, which now it seems indirect inverse proportion to how we feel about the presidential candidates. Uh, President Obama's approval ratings are now up at a, a very high level for him, 58 percent. That's very high for any national figure in the United States. And it, it does seem to be very much related to uh, really not only the distaste, but even the antipathy that Americans are feeling towards both of these candidates. Uh, so that, I think, is one striking finding. The other thing is, as we get in this sort of collective Poll frenzy. Uh, on the one hand, it's not surprising at all. Uh, if you asked any, uh, seasoned political observer the week before Labor Day, even not knowing about Hillary Clinton's pneumonia, Mm -hmm. even not knowing, uh, about any events that would come, uh, is this race gonna tighten? Are we gonna have a whole round of polls and the subsequent kind of media and echo chamber frenzy over the fact that this is a very close race? And I think that almost all of them would have predicted this tightening in the race. It's not just one poll. There's very clear evidence across the board and in all the surveys that we've seen over the last couple of weeks of a tightening in the race. And it does reflect certainly the distaste that that people across the political spectrum seem to feel for both Hillary Clinton and Donald Trump. But it also reflects, I think, a country that is really deeply divided. And remember, even something that counts as a landslide victory, Mm. President Obama's win in 2008, was just by a few points. And we're basically, no matter who the candidates are, uh, looking at a very tight race.
0: Jeff, in the world of sports, we always talk about how polls, are they important in college football? Do they matter early on? We have a championship game in college football, so it doesn't really matter who's ranked first at the start of the season. And Susan mentions poll frenzy. I mean, how much importance do we place on these polls until they actually meet on the Field, so to speak, for for that would be the pre- the debates.
3: Yeah, I think it's a good question. Uh, the campaigns, I think, would say certainly the Hillary Clinton campaign, most recently, would say we're not paying attention to the polls. Uh, Clinton actually, in one of her first meetings with the press last week, uh, after a long drought, said, "You know, I I don't look at the polls when they're good for me. I don't really look at the polls when they're bad for me. We expected this race to be tight, and I think it's probably true that they expected the race to be tight. I think what Susan says is correct. The The history of presidential elections in the United States for the last several cycles has been it's going to be a tight race. That said, uh, I think that there are certainly Democrats who expected Clinton to have this uh, in the bag or certainly be in a much stronger position uh, in polls. And some of these specific numbers are concerning in the swing states like uh, Rebecca mentioned the state of Colorado where um, Clinton has been doing pretty well polls are showing uh, Trump gaining there as well she also had some sort of Unfortunate polling trends in that New York Times-CBS poll with young people, under people under 30. Uh, she still had more support than Trump, but not as much as Obama. I think we'll probably see her and also the president, thanks to uh, his strong ratings, uh, really reaching out to those types of constituents in the coming weeks. What about battleground states? How are things going there?
2: Well, you know, it's important that you brought that up, because really, in the end, you talk about what's the poll that matters. It's not even the national uh, popular vote, of course, that matters on Election Day. It is the Electoral College math as much as anything. And what I think is really probably the the more interesting numbers to look at are in the individual states, as Rebecca pointed out. uh, You know, we've identified sort of 11 key states that we see as this year's Battleground that reflects sort of the most competitive states of recent elections, plus some that are on there because of the unique nature of Donald Trump's candidacy. And there, you know, Democrats have had a pretty built-in advantage in recent presidential elections. That's why they've had this this long-running winning streak uh, in presidential races. Uh, and that's what's interesting is that Trump has now pulled even or ahead in key uh, battlegrounds where he looked quite out of the running. For example, uh, he, there were several surveys this week that looked at Ohio, uh, which mm-hmm. is perhaps our most bellwether state, and that had him running slightly ahead there, dead even tied in Florida. And that's very interesting because uh, it's been assumed, actually, that of all the very uh, competitive, even too close to call presidential states, Florida obviously was the one that, that decided 2,000 uh, presidential race, that Trump would have bigger troubles there because of the rising Hispanic population and his his apparent targeting of uh, Hispanics with his comments about Mexicans in the wall, for example. And yet, interestingly enough, despite that, despite disorganization in his campaign in Florida, which is reflected in, in many of the states, actually, he's just not running uh, a super professionalized operation. And yet, even with all of those factors, it looks like he's running dead even uh, with her in Florida. And then there are the states like Jeff pointed out, like Colorado and also Virginia, where it had appeared that Hillary Clinton was taking those off the map, uh, that she was actually uh, close to locking down those as, as Democratic states. And yet they seem to be still competitive now in the middle of September. And,
1: and one of the questions, of course, that we have this year, and this is different than many other years, is exactly that, that imbalance we talk about in the campaign, where you have this really dedicated campaign infrastructure from Hillary mm-hmm. Clinton. She's really developed it. There's this really professional operation on the ground. And Donald Trump is running a very untraditional campaign. So the question, and this is unlike any other cycle that I've covered before, is when we look at these polls... um, Generally, we're looking at two campaigns with fairly equal turnout operations, Mm -hmm. um, fairly equal advertising, television advertising on the airwaves. So the question is, are they going to get all those voters to the polls who say that they support Donald Trump?
0: When when numbers shift dramatically, I think that's when maybe most people or maybe I pay attention. Have the, the polls shifted dramatically even, say, since last month?
1: There has been a shift.
3: Absolutely. Yeah, they've tightened. I mean, they've tightened a lot. Um, In in August, Trump had a little bit of a blip after his convention. Uh, Hillary Clinton had a pretty major blip uh, after hers and during a period when um, Trump had sort of a, a bad... Uh, week or two of of scandals that really hurt him in the polls. Uh, more recently, that has shifted a little bit because Hillary Clinton has had um, some some moments that did not go over well uh, with with poll with, in the polls or comment about. Um, half of Trump supporters being in a basket of deplorables and then uh, be having to, to jump off the campaign trail for a while and not being um, upfront right away about her pneumonia diagnosis has, has hurt her a little bit. Uh, so all of those things have contributed to a tightening. But I think you're right, A, when you said earlier, um, do the polls really matter ahead of this first debate? Yes, they matter. And it's it's one thing Democrats are doing to show that they matter is really trying to tell their voters not to get complacent um and republicans no doubt as well but that first debate is going to be huge and it's really going to be critical for um for both candidates and i think it's it's uh, it, it will be watched closely and it will have an impact on the polls as well
0: let me squeeze in really quick uh, naomi in pensacola florida naomi you're on the diane ream show
4: um hi um thank you for taking the call And um, I just want to say I listen to NPR radio all the time and the NPR news and all the talk shows. And um, I'm very pleased that they give a balanced even um, coverage of the news and of the campaign. But what I am disliking and disappointed in at the moment is that nobody is giving any coverage at all to the third party candidates. And I would like to hear more information about them because I think if ever there was a year that a third-party candidate could get in, this would be it.
0: Naomi, thanks a lot for the phone call. So Gary Johnson, Jill Stein, I'm assuming that's who she's talking about. But do are they still in the conversation?
2: Well, you know, it's really I'm, – I'm actually – I'm really glad she brought that up because I think one of the interesting things that we've all seen with this new batch of polls that's come out this week is actually challenging some of our assumptions about the role that these uh, – third-party candidates would play. Gary Johnson, we thought, well, he's going to take votes away from Donald Trump with uh, Republicans uh, who aren't really comfortable with Trump as the nominee. And yet, actually, he may be hurting Hillary Clinton.
0: We'll get more into it. Uh, Friday News Roundup here on The Diane Ream Show. A. Martinez filling in.
4: DCS Daily. DCS Daily. DCS Daily.
3: It's news,
4: culture,
1: and curiosities.
0: From the District, Tacoma Park,
1: Alexandria, Friendship
4: Heights, Hyattsville, Falls Church,
3: Northeast Washington, D.C., in your inbox
4: every weekday afternoon.
3: DCS DCS Daily. Daily.
4: Sign up at DCS.com slash newsletter.
1: DCS.com slash newsletter.
0: Welcome back. I'm A. Martinez of Take Two on KPCC, Southern California Public Radio, sitting in for Diane Reem. It's the Friday News Roundup, and we're joined by Rebecca Cinderbrand, Deputy National Political Editor, Washington Post, Jeff Mason, White House Correspondent for Reuters, and Susan Glasser, Editor Politico. Uh, we'll also take uh, your calls to 800-433-8850. That's 1-800-433-8850. Or you can email us, drshow at wamu.org. All right, so medical records. Everyone wants to know about everyone's medical records. Donald Trump's uh, spent uh, some time on his own health. Uh, his doctor, Harold Bornstein, uh, says that he is in excellent health. I can imagine that would have been the answer no matter what. Uh, but what, if anything, did uh, we learn, Jeff?
3: Well, so he also spent some time on The Dr. Oz Show. That's week. true, yes. And that, that was... Uh, Revealing on some level in terms of um, of his health, he talked a little bit about his uh, some numbers from his most recent physical. Um, he takes a cholesterol-lowering statin drug, for example. He doesn't have heart problems or type 2 diabetes. He is overweight, uh, is just a bit shy of the medical definition of being obese. Uh, and he told Dr. Oz that he gets exercise by going to campaign events. Mm. And, Moving his hands and being present in uh, sauna-like hot rooms. So that was the revelation about his health. That's his exercise plan. That is, at least currently, his exercise
0: plan. Yeah, I don't mean to be critical of anyone's exercise plan, but moving your hands around at a campaign event... I don't think would be enough.
3: Probably not the 30 minutes I have no of Willain aerobic like activity yeah. a day. That said, it is um, it is a lot of work to be on the campaign trail, and I know it is probably hard for candidates to get uh, their exercise. Although I will say that having covered President Obama's campaigns in '08 and 2012, yeah. that man got up and went to the gym every single day. <laughs> I always tell people, 30 minutes a day, that's all you really need. Um, so did we learn anything, Susan?
2: Uh, well, we learned that uh, the facts don't matter all that much to Donald Trump and, you know, that even his health can be turned into part of the sort of reality show aspect of this campaign. And I have to say, it's it's pr- listen to us having this conversation. It's pretty extraordinary. So, you know, okay. Donald Trump, what has he done? He's uh, turned it into a spectacle uh, in which he's actually refused to release the same amount of information as any of the other candidates while also running for president when he would be the oldest president ever elected uh, t- to this country. And instead of having a real serious conversation about that, we're having a serious conversation about, oh, gee, he went on a TV show with doctor Adon- Doctor who is also a lightning rod for controversy, who has been accused, uh, you know, by by a lot of people who have studied it a lot more than I have, mm. of peddling uh, quack cures, who's. Trump's own doctor, his proof of his health is releasing a letter from his doctor that says that he would be the most terrific, best, healthiest president ever, Uh, notwithstanding the fact that he would be the oldest president ever, notwithstanding the fact that he doesn't exercise, notwithstanding the fact uh, that he (laughs) uh, you know, is overweight or whatever the other issues are. And and, and so to me, there's two aspects of this. One is the legitimate and, and important and interesting conversation that we have candidates in both parties who are very uh, old and historically speaking, what does that mean to the United States? We know it's a very demanding job physically and mentally. What are the potential consequences of both parties turning uh, to people of such advanced age? That's a serious conversation. But once again, uh, you know, as we look at Donald Trump in 2016, we're not having that conversation. We're having a conversation about a spectacle and how come he didn't release this. And, you know, we're doing it on his terms on a TV show uh, that also brings into question the issue of Americans and their view about science and what's legitimate and what's not. And and of course, then the third bucket is why has Donald Trump consistently sought to make uh, health uh, both an overt and a covert issue against Hillary Clinton, who is younger than him? Uh, women have a longer life expectancy than men. Uh, there seems to be an issue around his desire to project himself as this very masculine, virile, strong uh, uh, person. uh, And we don't really know evidence-wise whether, you know, how much that's the case or not. Exactly. He's a strong guy. And the implication is that the woman candidate, she's very weak uh, because she got pneumonia.
1: I mean, and to that, you know, you would add another issue that this raised, which is the transparency issue. Once again, for Donald Trump, we are getting just the amount of information that he wants us to hear and absolutely nothing more. You know, you you pointed out that he's just shy of the uh, medical limit for being obese. Um, That appears to be because he's magically sprouted an inch in this latest medical report up until this week. Yes, this is a great point.
2: If you look, uh, uh, all previous reports have said this man is six foot two. Donald Trump this week is six foot three inches, according to this. And
1: if he had been six foot two inches, given the weight that he says he is, he would be classified medically as obese. But now that he is six foot three inches, he is now overweight. So, again, this highlights again, we just see from Donald Trump precisely what he wants us to see and nothing more, not the documents that people are asking for, not on the health front, not on the tax front, not on the charitable foundation front. Could he have been wearing flats at a physical before (laughs)
0: this? Uh, I don't know.
1: know, It's hard to say. But, you know, Again, we're waiting for these documents. We have, you know, reporters who've been chasing down it, particularly, you know, when it comes to his charitable foundation, looking for the documentation of these uh, donations that he says he's made. And um, we're still waiting for these documents. And all we
2: see is what Donald Trump would like us to see and nothing more. The Economist this week uh, called uh, this the post-truth campaign uh, that Donald Trump is waging.
0: Hmm. Well, one thing we did see, though, his child care proposal this week. Uh, What uh, more did we learn on that, Jeff?
3: That was um, partially a brainchild of his daughter, uh, Ivanka, who's really championed uh, that issue. Uh, We learned that uh, if he were to become president, Trump proposes allowing people, uh, allowing families uh, to deduct the the cost of child care expenses from their income taxes. Uh, Specifically, families could deduct those expenses if they have up to four kids or two uh, elderly dependents. Uh, and it would be available for individuals who earn less than two hundred fifty thousand dollars a year, uh, or couples who make less than five hundred thousand dollars a year uh, together. And I think one of the purposes of this policy proposal was to reach out to to women. Uh, that's a obviously very important constituent group in the United States, and one that he has struggled with. Uh, so that was one of the reasoning uh, behind behind this proposal. How does it compare to what we've seen from Hillary Clinton? Clinton. Has spent a lot of time in her entire career, and certainly on this presidential campaign, uh, talking about child care, talking about helping kids, helping families. I don't have the numbers for her program in front of me, but uh, this this is standard fare for Hillary Clinton and for Democrats. This is sort of a bit of an anomaly for uh, for Trump.
2: Well, not only is it an anomaly, but once again, in terms of accountability and consistency, uh, anyone working for the Donald Trump uh, organization uh, would not have been eligible for anything like uh, the kind of policies uh, he he was talking about this week.
1: I mean, one other kind of notable element of this rollout of the child care plan was again, as you point out, this was a brainchild of his daughter Ivanka, who lobbied very hard for it. Um, It did not seem – Ivanka is someone who's been on the campaign trail, seen as um, a stabilizing influence, had almost universally good views from people across the political spectrum for her performance on the campaign trail. And yet this week when she came out to speak about this child care plan, she did not seem prepared for the questions that she received about her father's record, about the details of that plan. Um, And so she stumbled a little bit. This is one of the first times we've seen that from her. And so it seems as though perhaps the campaign did not prepare her well for what she was about to face.
0: Let's go out to a Jeff in Broken Arrow, Oklahoma. Jeff, you're on the Diane Reem Show.
4: Hi, thank you. Hey, um, right off the back, I take exception. uh, There was a statement, no one likes either candidate, Uh, discussion about the historical lows. And it sort of becomes a self-fulfilling attitude. Um, I support Hillary Clinton. I like her. I think, as Brock said, she's likable enough. So, um,
0: well, listen to what you, she's likable enough. That's not a ringing endorsement, Jeff.
4: Well, I, I know that's not a ringing endorsement, but um, I actually like her a great deal. And Oklahoma is one of the reddest of all states. Uh, we've had uh, also one of the most financial disasters, having had a dozen years, a decade of Republican failures. So I think that uh, we're going to see a a surprise in which a lot of folks are going to come out and be positive in the polls. But, you know, as I say, it becomes a self-fulfilling attitude. People don't want to admit, you know, oh, I I like one or the other of the candidates, obviously, for different reasons. But um, I think Hillary is uh, a wonderful candidate.
3: All right, Jeff, thanks uh, a lot for the phone call. Worth noting that the comment that Jeff uh, referred to by then-Senator Obama was during the 2008 uh, okay. primary uh, and probably not one of his prouder moments, uh, <laughs> and, and worth noting that he has given a very, very strong endorsement of Secretary Clinton since then, n- not least just this week when he went out on the campaign trail um, on his own and, and just gave a resounding speech for her. So I think it's fair to say that uh President Obama views Hillary Clinton as more than likable enough. But what the caller is asking about is our discussion earlier um, r- regarding the polls, and the polls show that both candidates are historically unpopular. That doesn't mean, of course, that there aren't people who like them both. They wouldn't have become their respective parties nominees if that likability wasn't there. But they are historic at historic lows in terms of uh, popularity. And
1: that's actually a very important question, the question of enthusiasm and intensity heading into- to Election Day, kind of looking at the gap between the two parties. As of right now, the people who feel strongly about Donald Trump at this moment, at least looking at the polls, are more enthusiastic about him than the people who feel strongly about Hillary Clinton. And so the question of how much that intensity matters heading into November.
0: Now, Jeff in Oklahoma mentioned how he likes Hillary Clinton, and we haven't talked about her health. Uh, She had an issue uh, a few days ago, and now she released a letter from her doctor as she returned to the campaign trail yesterday. She's actually here in D.C. today. Uh, Susan, what do we know about her medical records? I, I know now I am feeling a little icky about the whole medical thing from Trump all the way now to Hillary.
2: Well, again, look, she, she, first of all, just to be clear, right, she has released a lot more documentation yep. than Donald Trump has. Basically, he said, take my word at it and offered a few tidbits on a highly controversial TV show. She's released pages and pages of information from her doctor. You know, you can look up on the Internet now what Hillary Clinton's heart rate is. And uh, it turns out to be quite low, uh, which, uh, again, there is a slightly higher risk of, you know, someone fainting or things like that from the level of heart rate that she has. Uh, she, as well is taking various um medicines. She has these seasonal allergies. She has a diet that is uh characterized as as strong on fruits and vegetables, unlike uh uh donald trump's or her own husband's famously for that uh matter, at least back in his pre pre heart condition days right. um you know it, basically uh you know her doctor has pronounced her to be fit uh to run for president uh and to serve as president again you know the the overall issue it seems to me with Hillary Clinton is the fact of her age. There has been nothing uh, that these doctors' reports have released that would indicate uh, any evidence to feed these conspiracy theories that have been uh, on the internet and, and fed by the far right uh, about uh, any lasting damage, for example, from the the head injury that she suffered uh, several years ago that led to her, you know, being temporarily absent from her job as secretary of state. There's been no additional evidence of any long-term consequences of that, but you know, that's the kind of narrative that's been out. There there. It's not found in these records, which basically show a healthy, almost 69-year-old woman.
0: Coming up in just a second, we'll, uh, we'll answer the question if there's been a double standard when it comes to health records. Uh, i Amy e. Martinez. You're listening to The Diane Ream Show. If you'd like to join us, give us a call 800-433-8850 or send us an email to drshow at wamu.org or find us on Facebook and send us a tweet as well. And you can find me on Twitter, a. Martinez, La. That's a. Martinez, La. All right, uh, Rebecca, has there been a double standard? That's what we've been hearing.
1: Well, you know, certainly that's what Hillary Clinton supporters would say. You know, the issue here, I think, um, from what we've seen unfolding in the days since Hillary Clinton's health incident, the 9-11 memorial was people's concerns are not just about her health. It's, again, going to that larger question of transparency, Mm -hmm. the feeling that, kind of as the details have come out about what transpired in the days and the weeks leading up to this incident, that perhaps Hillary Clinton was not completely forthcoming, um, that people had no idea, even people within her campaign um, had no idea that she was battling this health incident. And it goes to the kind of larger questions that some people have had about whether she is, in general, completely transparent and honest with the American people. So Beyond the question of health, that's the bigger picture here.
0: Because I actually thought what she said rang really relatable to a lot of people when she said i was trying to power through who doesn't man or woman try to power through if you've got a cold if you if you got a stomach you just try and pass. so i thought that actually was a pretty genius way to frame it jeff the you know just like anybody else in
3: america would try to power through and do their job well and i think the key word there is relatable i think a lot of people can relate to that um, i mean i spent a lot of time overseas in my career and the europeans when they're sick usually stay home and when i came back to the u.s uh, I'm sort of astounded by folks who come to the office with a cold, folks who... Which uh, is not
0: good, by the way. If you're sick, I, you should no, stay home. Everyone should stay, stay home. And yeah.
3: even Hillary Clinton said this week, or uh, in some of the interviews right after she uh, the diagnosis was made, that you know she ignored the advice of her doctor and she should have gotten rest. And um, now she has gotten some rest, and she looked well-rested uh, yesterday when she got back on the campaign trail and also said that the time off was a gift for her and that, that she'd use the time to reflect a little bit on the campaign and um but it it uh it, it is it's an interesting sort of comment on Americans and how we deal with um our own health that um people feel the need to to show up when uh, when they're sick obviously it's not an apples for apples comparison to a person who's running for president and only has less than 60 days left in the race so you can understand why in that particular situation you'd want to power through. But it's um, in the long run, it's better to be healthy um, to finish the race. Susan, what about you?
2: Well, it does feel like we're, you know, uh, anyone in public life, whether Democrat or Republican faces a pretty unforgiving uh, uh, uh echo chamber of judgment. So on the one hand, you would think this might be a political opportunity for Hillary Clinton. After all, she's been called unrelatable. She's been called distant. She's been called, uh, you know, not like regular people. And this is a very humanizing moment, right? You know, this is a, a something happening to her that, that happens to anybody. People potentially, You know, especially when uh, undergoing such an extraordinary schedule and it's a grueling physical uh, exercise to become, uh, to run for president. Many of her staff have been uh, ill for months. They've been hospitalized. Uh, You know, they're human and so is she. So, on the one hand, you would think it might be a political opportunity for her to show her grit, to show her resilience, to show the fact that she's just like. An ordinary person at at a time when she's been typecast as someone who doesn't feel uh, normal to people. On the other hand, she's gotten clobbered, uh, as Rebecca put it, around this question of, you know, turning a health issue into a transparency and disclosure issue. And, you know, that seems uh, uh, where people have really stuck with their critique of this incident, why did she not? Uh, but I'm when, wondering
0: where it goes from here. Yeah. Every stop she has, I, well, I, I got right. a tummy you know, ache exactly. right now. Well, that's exactly. The sniff, American I mean. people.
2: Well, that's exactly right. you <laughs> have to reveal it. <laughs> I'm sure that if she were sitting down with us here, that's what she would say. Is like, are you kidding me? Like, you know, what, what, what information is too much for you people? On the one hand, and then of course there is. The other bucket, which concerns us as journalists, which is, is Trump being held to the same standards?
0: More of your thoughts coming up. Uh, 1-800-433-8850. That's 1-800-433-8850. You can also email us, drshow at wamu.org. This is A Martinez filling in on The Diane Ream Show. Welcome back. I am mean, Martinez of take two on KPCC, Southern California Public Radio sitting in for Diane Reem. Our guests, Rebecca Cinderbrand of The Washington Post, Jeff Mason from Reuters and Susan Glasser Politico. You can also uh, get on the phone with us at uh, 800-433-8850. That's 1-800-433-8850. You can email us drshow at wamu.org. And you can see a live video stream of The Roundup. Uh, just go to uh, drshow.org. That's drshow.org. Org. All right. Uh, something we talked about earlier this week on the Diane Reem Show, uh, middle-class income. Some good news uh, this week when it comes to rising incomes for the middle class. Um, Jeff, do we know what's behind the improvement?
3: Well, probably several factors. An um, improving job market, uh, low inflation, uh, and rising wages, uh, in particular for for people who, who make, um, for low-income earners. Mm-hmm. Um, those are all behind some of these really excellent numbers, um, the the real median household income uh, in 2015 went up to 56,500 dollars. That was a 5.2 percent jump from uh, 2014, and the largest percentage gain since the 1960s. The poverty rate fell by 1.2 percentage points. Um, still, a lot of poor people in the country 43.1 million, uh, but that was an improvement from um, you know, 3.5 million fewer than in, in 2014.
0: And Susan, one of the things I wondered about when I saw these numbers come out, and only because I I know people that say, well, yeah, our our household income went up because I got a second job Mm -hmm. and my wife went back to work or or vice versa. So sometimes maybe these numbers can be a little misleading.
2: Well, I think they can, although, you know, because they're tracked so closely every year, this this jump is a very large jump. And, you know, I talked to a couple of people who follow economics much more closely than I do this week because I was interested in this and you know they said this was the bump that we expected but didn't get uh, out of the uh, sort of post 2008 crisis recovery Mm -hmm. Uh, you know so the overall economy recovered and one of the things we've been talking about and its impact in politics as well is the fact that uh, it didn't seem to be reflected in Americans' income and that it hadn't sort of uh, reached a broad enough swath of the population. So this does seem to be somewhat of a delayed benefit from the uh, uh, post-2008 stimulus and, and recovery that followed. But I, you know, I think your point goes right to the big political question of 2016, right, which is uh, you have one candidate, Donald Trump, painting this very sort of dark and dyspeptic a portrait of America right now, uh, at heart of which is this notion that, uh, well, maybe the rich are doing well, but that everyday Americans somehow, uh, you know, are not moving ahead in the way uh, that they would like to, that this sort of uh, forward momentum uh, in American society for the middle class has somehow halted. And counterbalancing that are this, you know, basically drumbeat of very, very uh, positive economic data. Remember, you've had, I think it's 58 straight months or something of uh, of economic growth in this country, one of our longest uh, growing streaks ever. You have, uh, you know, very strong evidence across the board that during the two terms of the Obama presidency, uh, the, ego- the economy has grown in a lot of uh, positive ways, and yet you know, there's this feeling of, of sort of angst and unhappiness. And so one of the things we're going to find out, I think, is, uh, you know, how much does the middle class feel like they're going to choose the more optimistic version of America being sold by Hillary Clinton and the Democrats this this fall. Generally, economics do decide American elections.
0: And the White House did a bit of a victory lap when these numbers came out. So I'm wondering from Hillary Clinton's side of things, how how does she take the baton if she wants to take that baton? Does she say, look, a vote for me means these numbers can continue? And then on the flip side, how does Donald Trump counter that?
1: Yeah, it's an interesting balance. You know, two of the numbers that we look at heading into an election year, when you have um, a two term presidency and you have a member of the president's party, looking to succeed him is where is the president's approval rating and where is economic growth? So right now, technically, looking at both of those metrics, Hillary Clinton has the wind at her back. And yet, it is an interesting balancing act. On the one hand, when you talk about these numbers, one of the new things we've seen this year is a presidential candidate who questions the numbers themselves, who will say, you know, you see these economic numbers released by the government that says we're doing so well. You shouldn't necessarily believe these numbers you're seeing. So that the notion of whether or not the economy actually is doing well is. No longer tied to objective numbers, but suddenly becomes a partisan question Um, that's always been true to some extent, but it's particularly this year when you're questioning the very notion of Mm. um, authority and truth and so on on these numbers. And for Hillary Clinton, it's an interesting balancing act. On the one hand, running on President Obama's record, running on this um, economy that is, by all objective accounts, growing. On the other hand, there are these long-term trends in place that preceded Obama and will likely succeed whoever succeeds him in office. Which is, there are people who have been left behind by globalization. They definitely feel. you seeing this anger. It's the driving story of this election on both sides of the aisle. Um, you saw it with the move with Bernie Sanders. You saw it with Donald Trump, this this anger over trade and, and the decisions that are being made and the way this economy is benefiting people at the top or perceived to be benefiting people at the top and leaving other people behind. So you have to balance those two messages. On the one hand, the economy is booming. On the other hand, people are being left yeah. behind and not seeming out of touch or not able to relate with the pain that ordinary people are feeling.
0: You mentioned Bernie Sanders. This is an email from Lauren in Seattle. Uh, My question for today's panel is why has there been a noticeable absence of Bernie Sanders on the campaign trail in support of Hillary Clinton? It seems the last time we saw Senator Sanders was at the Democratic convention in Philadelphia. Is this by design or maybe mutual agreement?
2: I think, actually, he and Elizabeth he's, Warren are going to be yes. in Ohio, isn't yeah, that right? Yeah, he's, Bernie Sanders, I believe, is in Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. Elizabeth Warren in
1: Ohio. Mm-hmm. So they are out there, actually, for Hillary Clinton. Just this weekend. Just yeah. this weekend, yeah. Okay, so
0: the plan is there, it is in place, at least for him to be out there. All right. Uh, let's go out to Christian in Houston, Texas. Christian, you're on The Diane Reem Show.
4: Uh, yes, hi. Thank you for having me on. Sure. Um, I am a millennial uh, Clinton supporter and i've watched the news quite a bit recently so i have a question for the panel i'd like to ask them if uh, whether it be cnn or fox news if they've been taking on so-called kids gloves with donald trump um and his policies especially his tax returns and the lack of them go ahead susan
2: you know it's it's really interesting the caller raises this question of you know wow as if it's the media's fault, he Donald Trump hasn't gotten tough coverage. If only we'd been writing these stories and talking about it more, then Donald Trump somehow wouldn't have risen in the polls. I think if you go back and, and, and look, the the record is going to show there's been a lot of great, tough, important journalism about Donald Trump and his record, his uh, record of lies, exaggerations, falsehoods, uh, refusal to disclose things, uh, uh, the... Washington Post, Politico, many others have uh, done extensive reporting on all these issues. The tax returns are an issue, uh, largely because the media has kept it up and uh, hasn't stopped. Uh, And so I think that, you know, it's an understandable uh, critique. And I think we all every day are uh, challenging ourselves to how do we cover this most unusual Mm. uh, campaign candidate and campaign. But uh, when it comes to the specific question of have we done enough aggressive reporting uh, on Donald Trump, uh, I think the the answer is yes. The question is, why isn't it sticking? It's a phenomenon that I'm increasingly, you know, feeling this year that I would sort of call transparency without accountability. Uh, you know, that, that we have more information, more reporting, uh, more of everything when it comes to uh, in the public sphere, when it comes to both of these candidates than arguably ever before. And yet, uh, certainly in the case of Donald Trump, there doesn't seem to be a lot of accountability that is going along with it. And, you know, that is almost like the central tenet of the journalist religion, right, Mm -hmm. (laughs) Uh, is that, you know, bring the sunlight out and uh, the disinfectant will follow.
0: <laughs> Jeff, Jeff and Rebecca, I want to hear both your thoughts too because i 'm wondering when you hear you know this media criticism, do you take it personally? Does it bother you at all? Does it do you feel a sting?
1: well you know to be honest right now the the longer that this campaign has gone on, it feels like there 's two very different things going on, which is there 's the critique of the media, which is a proxy for how people feel the frustration mm. they feel that the story that they feel strongly about is not cashing out. Other people don't feel as strongly about it. I can't tell you the number of times I'll hear from a reader and they'll ask why we don't cover issue X or issue Y, and it will literally be a story that's on the front page of WashingtonPost.com <laughs> at that moment. Um, but they're not really critiquing the media as it actually exists. They're agree- they're critiquing, you know, to put quote marks around it, the media, the idea of this kind of journalistic Space where the stories that they think should rise to the top are not the ones that most readers are looking for, that most viewers are looking for, and so they just don't catch fire.
3: Jeff, what about you? I don't. I don't think it's our job to take it personally when there's criticism. Uh, I do think it's our job to listen when when the criticism is uh, legit. And I think some of the questions that have come up about uh, coverage and and wall to wall TV coverage and um, dating all the way back, of course, to the primary. Uh, campaign of, of Donald Trump and the others um, raises some, some legitimate questions, and I think um, it's, it's good that they're asked, and I think it's important for journalists and, and the, the managers of news who make the decisions about coverage uh, to reflect on them.
2: You know, I am glad Jeff brought up this issue of TV because I do think that uh, you, you can and should make distinctions. While we have been having this conversation this morning, uh, we have a TV screen in this room that shows CNN for the entire time of the conversation. So we're now uh, 50 minutes in to this hour. Uh, basically, CNN has been running uh, a blank uh, podium and saying soon Donald Trump will speak. And, you know, this is almost a caricature. Uh, mm-hmm. Really, of the entire two thousand and sixteen campaign, which is that the empty podium uh, of donald trump uh, and by the way, Donald Trump has called uh, an event that seems to be both a combination of publicizing his new
0: it 's one of his projects hotel right
2: uh, and he 's going to talk once again uh, about the issue uh, that really first propelled him into politics, which is uh, the questioning of president obama 's uh, uh, basic facts of his life in a way that is you know outrageously flagrantly. Uh, untrue and yet somehow has persisted even into 2016. Donald Trump has continued to question uh, President Obama's birth. And now the media uh, in the form of TV and not the media in the form of the Washington Post, Reuters or Politico has been sucked into uh, basically a show that Donald Trump has thrown this morning. And l- literally we're now 52 minutes in. The CNN has up. been showing an empty podium <laughs> for 52 minutes. So, you know, when this caller talks about well, the media, Well, there's people on the podium. It's the just media. not Trump. That's the thing. Everyone's <laughs> Well, they're not doing awaiting. anything. Yeah, they're yeah. not talking. Uh, c- CNN is just breathlessly, uh, you know, quote, unquote, covering uh, a show that Donald Trump has thrown, apparently, to promote uh, his private business interests. I
0: Amir mean, Martinez, you're listening to The Diane Reem Show. You can also get a hold of us at uh, 800-433-8850 or drshow at wamu.org and see a live uh, video stream of the Roundup. Uh, just go to drshow.org. All right. Uh, the NCAA took action this week uh, in response to a very controversial North Carolina law known as HB2. Uh, Jeff, uh, what was the decision and how uh, impactful will it be?
3: So first, it's it's probably useful to explain the law. It makes it um, unlawful for for someone to use a restroom that is different from the gender on their Birth certificate, uh, regardless of their gender identity, and the NCAA uh, decided because of that law to move seven championship events, uh, including basketball, golf, lacrosse, um, out of the state, um, and and that was followed then by the ACC, uh, the Atlantic Coast Conference of collegiate sports, um, also moving um, fourteen of twenty-one. Uh, championship events in this academic year.
0: And for uh, just to put some context there, when it comes to the ACC, the Atlantic Coast Conference, in the state of North Carolina, four of the seven original schools that founded that conference are there, and that's uh, North Carolina, North Carolina State, Duke, and Wake Forest. And uh, Rebecca, I, I loved the-, the example that you p- put it in context for people that maybe don't know sports too much, but tell us about how, how you phrased
3: it. Yeah,
1: I was I was saying, you know, before the show, it's basically as though they'd taken the Macy's Thanksgiving Day Parade and, and said it can't be held in New York this year. We're going to yeah. hold it across the river in New Jersey somewhere. It's it's just not the same. It gets yeah. to the heart of what North Carolina is.
0: So I'm wondering if we'll see a domino effect here because the, all across the country, the, this well it, bathroom bill, Issue ha- has Im- like when when you think about what the NBA did with the All Star game. I mean that really kind of no one really thought about too much other than maybe people in sports. But now it's starting to become something that uh, everyone is paying a lot of attention to.
2: Well, what what's striking to me is that uh, this isn't just uh, something that you can dismiss as oh gee it's uh, you know liberal celebrities who don't want to uh, come to North Carolina anymore. That you know this is really a pretty uh, you know it's it's core to the identity of the state. It's, uh, you know, sort of red blood American uh, sports. uh, And you've seen this, by the way, with some of the other kind of boycott driven politics in Indiana, I'm thinking of uh, in recent years on the question of uh, uh, gay rights more broadly. And, you know, turning uh, civil rights issues into economic issues, where you basically have sort of not only mainstream American business, uh, historically allied with Republicans, uh, saying, wait a minute, you know, we 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 can't uh turn our states into platforms for uh conservative political causes. And I think it's a it's a very interesting uh uh kind of macro trend, right? It's clearly not just in North Carolina. I think the politics of this are interesting and suggest uh that the American public or the at least the mainstream business part of it uh is moving along with uh, a new generation of voters in a in the direction of more progressive civil rights uh, point of view. And that's not clearly not been fully reflected in our national presidential campaign this year. And, and not to be too mm.
1: one note about this, but we are in a presidential election year. North Carolina is a battleground state. So the question becomes, again, what sort of impact this might have on voters there?
3: And Hillary, I was traveling with Hillary Clinton last week when she was in North Carolina, and she brought it up. Uh, she brought up the law, she brought up the governor, and and she made a point of drawing that line that Susan was just drawing um, to decisions like that and having an economic impact. And this will have an economic impact. And right?
0: as of right now, there are no Super Bowls scheduled for the state of North Carolina. But if that ever – that, I think, would be maybe – the, the straw that breaks the camel, or, or at least that causes movement one way or the other, because the Super Bowl and the NFL are the most powerful things in this country when it comes to sports entertainment. Real quick, I want to squeeze in uh, Wells Fargo. The Department of Justice uh, opened an investigation into Wells Fargo over some fake accounts. Uh, Rebecca, what does uh, the DOJ think happened there?
1: So the DOJ is basically saying that what happened is they, the uh, millions of fake accounts may have been um, established in an effort to kind of hide the true economic condition, the true performance of the company. Um, and it, have to again circle this back this goes back to what a lot of voters are feeling is that people at the top at these banks have gotten away with murder in the yeah. in the aftermath of the 2008 financial crisis and so um again we're in an election year you're looking at the possibility of actual uh, charges and, and, and the discussion of criminal elements happening right now around a bank. So it's a very interesting discussion to be having right now.
0: And as a Wells Fargo customer myself, it's, I get shaken. You know, when I heard the news, I was just like, well, what? I'm wondering had to check everything. I think I'm OK. But, you know, you hope that people in charge fix things or at least address things. And, and, and knows, it, it's right? worth
1: noting, of course, one of the largest investors in Wells Fargo is Warren Buffett, um, who mm-hmm. is, of course, a very prominent supporter of Hillary Clinton.
0: All right. My guests uh, today, are Rebecca Cinderbrand, Na- Deputy National Political editor of the Washington Post, Jeff Mason, White House correspondent Reuters, and Susan Glasser, editor of Politico. My thanks to all three of you. Thank thanks you. for having us. I'm mean, Martinez of Take Two on KPCC, Southern California Public Radio, sitting in for Diane Rehm. Thank you very much for listening.
2: The Diane Rehm show is produced by Sandra Baker, Denise Couture, Rebecca Kaufman, Lisa Dunn, Alexandra Botee, Danielle Knight, Erica R. Hendry, Allison Brody, and Gracie McKenzie. The engineer is Douglas Bell. Cliff Gallagher answers the phones.